0: This is the Amblecote Christian Centre podcast. Welcome back to the podcast all about the Messiah. Um, We'll start by recapping some of what we learned last time and then dive straight into the content for this podcast. Last time we explored how the Bible deals with Messiah, we learned... The Old Testament uses of Messiah to mean anointed. We learned that kings and priests were anointed. We learned that when Israel was in exile in Babylon, prophets begun prophesying a leader who would lead them out of exile. We also learned that exile is a picture of mankind's expul- expulsion from the Garden of Eden. And if a Messiah was going to deliver Israel, they'd need to deal with sin. In a sense, not just to end the exile from the land of Israel, but end exile from Eden. We also mentioned how Jews at the time of Christ were a little more focused on their own immediate issues, Roman rule, and were expecting a king to lead them against Rome. We also discussed how the Old Testament promises uh, about a return from exile. The promises about the expected leader were big, but had not happened. Today, we're going to dive a bit deeper into those issues. And we're going to look at a couple of key prophecies about the Messiah and how they paint the picture of a leader who will will combine two important roles into one, the king and high priest. This matters because if Jesus is king and high priest maybe we should know what the king and high priest actually did. So just like last time I want us to go back in time again to put our minds in the minds of those in the ancient world, and set the scene. A couple looked down on the road to Jerusalem. Silhouettes of crucifixes were still visible against the great city's walls. They weren't alone on the road, refugees passed them in droves. One stopped and joined the pair. It's over man. I I can't believe it, he said trembling. The woman replied. What's the news? We, we got out when we saw the smoke. What did you stay? Ignoring the second question, he replied, The king's not the king anymore. He's just the high priest. We're we just going to be another part of Rome. During a deep breath, the woman replied, At least she's still high priest. The city still stands. But interrupting, the refugee snapped back. He'll be high priest about as long as his coin lasts. That Roman that's been outside the gates for three months, harassing us, he just walked straight into the temple. He even got in the Holy of Holies, don't you understand? Nothing happened to him. God didn't strike him down. This is it for Judah. The temple's been desecrated. God's left us. The uh, the Jews in my story there, full of sorrow, were discussing... The first invasion of the Romans in 63 BC. These events are the events that shaped Jewish faith at the time of Jesus. You see, the people who Rome had just defeated was the first independent Jewish state for a very long time. And just to just to put that on a timeline for you, in 597 BC, the Jews were taken into ex- exile. And there was no king in Jerusalem. So Judah had become just another backwater province of the massive empire. So then over the next 430 years, Israel had absolutely no king. After that long period of uh, foreign rule, uh, the moment recorded in the Maccabees happened. And at last, Judah became an independent state again in 160 B.C. until this moment in uh, 63 B.C. when the Romans invaded. So in, in, in 17 generations of Jews, only three of them had ever tasted anything like an independent kingdom. You could say that only three generations had seen something like God's kingdom. But more than having no king, they had no prophets either. Since the return from exile, not a word of scripture had been written. We'll look at this in more detail later because this is a pivotal moment in history. But now we're going to go back to the start of the Bible and look at the Bible's Bible's references to the Messiah. I want you to try and put yourself in the shoes of the Jews at the time of Jesus reading these verses. So remember that if, if you were alive at the time of Jesus... Only the oldest people around you would remember freedom, a free kingdom. Um, And the scriptures that you read every day or you you read quite often, that promise so much for Israel had not come true for nearly half a millennium. So when we look at the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, we find virtually no references to um, a singular future Messiah who would save and deliver the people and restore Eden. However the Torah sets the scene for the groundwork for the Messiah and introduces uh, patterns and principles of God to humanity. I don't think it's that odd that there's little expectation for a Messiah in the early parts of the Bible. They were focused on and had hope in other things that God was doing and giving. In Genesis the hope for salvation of humanity its God's promise to Abraham the creation of a nation who walk with God. They're not not looking for a Messiah to die on behalf of their sins. In Exodus, the hope is through the rescuing of Israel and the delivery of Israel by God himself. Um, And that ongoing hope is given through the law and the establishing of a nation. In Samuel, the hope of God's salvation is a human king to lead people, through understanding what Jesus did in the New Testament, we, we now look back on these moments in Scripture and see the grand story of a Messiah sown into salvation history. We see how Abraham's promise uh, led to um, led to Jesus. We see how the exodus and God's delivery from Egypt uh, and how the law points to Jesus and how the king points to Jesus. But the people at the time of Jesus wouldn't have necessarily seen these things. In the Torah, Messiah, meaning anointed one, only really appears in reference to priests and high priests. So this is the first thread on which we can pull in terms of understanding in more detail who the Messiah is. The priesthood is a critical part of the identity of the Messiah. But what is a priest? Uh, what, what, they, they had their job in a tabernacle or the temple, what's that? Well, Let's take a look. Firstly, it's good to understand their context. In the world around Israel, the preeminent belief was that the gods needed feeding. Rites and sacrifices were about lavishing and twisting the arms of gods to prevent calamity. Israel, however, had a god who needed nothing from his people except obedience. Jewish rites and rituals were about holiness and about covering humans, so that they could come close to God. No other religion had this idea about holiness and intimacy with God. In Canaan, and and some levels, in in pagan religions, who could approach the gods? Well, in one sense, everybody, because everybody could own an idol, created statues and symbols of gods that they believed presenced um, the gods with them or represented them on earth. Pagan faith even have stories of God's mixing and mating with humans, but never in the same way that the Bible talks about closeness or intimacy with God. Israel was another story. God dwelt with Israelites, but only the holy could approach him um, in close proximity, which, which is a problem for God's plan for people. You see, holy means to be set apart or different or transcendent. Since the fall of man, people have been anything but transcendent. Guilt, sin, shame, rule the lives of people. Life itself was God's good creation and death was a result of sin and evil and the fall. Fundamentally, in the biblical view, death is evil and life is good. I think we'd agree. This base theology is where we get the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and indeed Jesus. The consequence of sin is death. The consequence of being unholy is separation from God, who is holy. Leviticus 17.14 states that the life is in the blood. Blood is seen as a source of life. And therefore, in the sacrificial system, it is blood that is sprinkled on people and places in order to make them holy. The blood acts to cover up. With life, that which has made that person or place unholy. So sin brings unholiness and death and only life itself can restore it or cover it up. I know this is a little odd to us because I think we see uh, the spilling of blood as a symbol for death, but uh, the ancient world sees blood as a symbol for life. So the splashing of blood on things was a symbol for returning things to life. The priest, therefore, is a crucial role. Priests of the Old Testament were expert butchers who performed sacrifices on behalf of themselves, the people and the nation. But today, we would say all this is meaningless, maybe. We we don't do sacrifices anymore. But a good understanding of these sacrifices, I think, is important. When discussing the Sabbath and feast laws, Paul says in 2 Colossians, These things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Discussing the temple and sacrifices, the author of Hebrews states, they served at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown on you on the mountain. The sacrifice... Priest and temple systems were designed to copy heavenly realities. They were shadows of a real thing. It was a place where God, who is completely other or different, he's completely holy. It's a place where he could inhabit a space on earth, which is liable to death and impurity. Through the sprinkling of blood or sprinkling of life, priests could enter into God's presence, washed or covered, of the things that made them earthly or fleshly. So the priest provides a critical role in the community of God's people. The priest makes it possible for the people to dwell in the same camp as God. The whole role of priests was to protect the holiness of God's presence and the holiness of the people in the camp. In Leviticus, we see their role stated, um, and you can break it down into these kind of two major roles. The first is to preserve their own holiness uh, so that they could work in the temple. We see uh, this happening in the parable of a good Samaritan when the priest avoids touching the man on the side of the road because he thinks he might be dead and in the kind of ancient mind touching someone who was dead was touching death itself and making the person who touched it impure and needing to go through uh, the rituals of sprinkling blood again in order to get back to a pure state. The second uh, role of a priest was to teach the law to the people so that they could protect the holiness of a camp. The high priest then was the ultimate example of this purpose. He was the one who was permitted to enter in the most intimate area of the temple, the Holy of Holies. Remember, the temple is the shadow of heaven, so the Holy of Holies represents God's throne room, the closest proximity to him available before Jesus. It was in this space that if a person entered who was not ceremonially pure or holy themselves, um, the presence of God would cause them to fall down dead. They'd be unable to stand in the potency of God's presence because he was so holy. For this purpose, the high priest would enter into the space only once a year on the day of atonement. He would perform rituals to atone for sin and the unholiness of the people. But he also flicked blood on the inside of the Holy of Holies to ensure that even this most pure place was covered and cleansed with life so God could dwell amongst them. Before this process, he would have had his head anointed with oil so he would become an anointed one. In other words a messiah. If you know the um, the life of Jesus then much of what we've already discussed you'll identify in what Jesus did for us. Him being holy he could uh, go even even closer to God he could go into the not the shadow of a throne room on earth in the temple but he could enter the very throne room of God and offer life on behalf of the people. However, in the Torah, there's no verse that directly suggests that Messiah will be a high priest. We do find instead in Deuteronomy 18, the promise of another prophet like Moses to come. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And while well, prophets they got, countless prophets would come to Israel and guide them away from sin and back towards God. Years after Moses and the kings, Israel had so abandoned God's plan that it was destroyed by Babylon and by exiled, as we covered last time. But it was there in captivity where there was no temple, so therefore no earthly shadow of heaven. There was no priest nor high priest to preserve the holiness of a people, to cultivate the presence of God. And it was in that place that the uh, prophets began to tell of a future figure who would come and restore what had been lost. Let's read one of these prophecies. Zechariah 3.18 says, Listen to me, O Joshua the high priest, and all you other priests, You are symbols of things to come. Soon I'm going to bring my servant the branch. Zechariah is writing from exile in Babylon and prophesying a vision that he's had involving uh, Joshua, who is the first high priest to stand uh, in the new temple built by Ezra. So Joshua here is a a symbol of high priests. So let's read that whole verse now. We kind of get that context. Verse 1, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his dirty clothes Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Almighty Lord says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, Then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. Zechariah's prophecy here outlines some of the roles of a high priest and the conditions of his role. Uh, In verse 7, the first is that he will walk in my ways and keep my charge the second is rule my house and have charge of my courts and third is i will give you right of access among those who are standing here and this right of access is a reference to the holy of holies but perhaps you can see in this role of a high priest uh, jesus who walked in his ways who ruled his house and had the highest right of access to god Zechariah's prophecy here about the high priest contains a great clue to the Messiah's identity though but he said you are symbols of things to come soon I'm going to bring my servant the branch you see um, this language here enables us to connect this prophecy with other ones my servant is frequently used in relation to people set apart for God's service but Jeremiah a hundred years before, prophesied about the branch and didn't identify him as a high priest, but identified him as a royal figure from David's line. Jeremiah 33.15 says, In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. And in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Saviour. Going back to Zechariah in chapter 6, we also read, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and bear royal honour, and sit and rule on the throne and there shall be a priest on his throne, and a council of peace shall be between them both. Between Zechariah and Jeremiah, uh, not to mention the Psalms and other verses, um, the Old Testament is predicting that the Messiah will be in the pattern of a high priest, but that priest will also be the branch, the king in the line of David. With every prophecy of the Old Testament, it's important to check to see if that prophecy was fulfilled, already in history. Maybe it's not Jesus. Maybe he's talking about someone else. Um, so the key things we're looking at here is that this branch figure will rebuild the temple and he will be both king and priest. So let's let's check the history. Did this happen? Well, a high priest did rebuild the temple. We see this in Ezra. But he certainly wasn't a king. Interestingly, however, one day in human history, high priest did become the king so maybe maybe that's this prophecy fulfilled but this identity of the messiah as king and priest is so important um, and so telling about god i think it's worth telling the story of how we get this real life uh, high priest king and kind of show you just how um, how troubling it is really So a hundred years after Nehemiah had built his wall and the temple had been rebuilt, Judah remained a part of the Persian Empire, having no king of her own. This was a period of relative calm for a hundred years, but then Alexander the Great himself defeated the Persian Empire and a new Greek Empire was built across the Middle East. Unfortunately for Jerusalem and the Jews, this new empire was quickly split by Alexander's generals when he died. Two new empires fought for supremacy in the region. Egypt, ruled by the Greek pharaoh Ptolemy, and the Seleucid Empire in the north. Wedged between these two new empires was Israel. There was relative peace, and the Jews learned the Greek language and Greek thought. However, there was a bizarre episode of a power struggle for the high priest role, and a fake report of the Seleucid king's death that led to the empire cracking down on Jewish religion. In 168 BC, Jewish practices were banned, Jerusalem was placed under direct Seleucid control, the temple in Jerusalem was polluted with the worship of pagan gods, and Jews were forced to work on the Sabbath and eat pork. Thousands were killed or enslaved, and it was in this context that the Maccabees started a rebellion. This rebellion against the Seleucid Greeks and also those Jews who loved the Greeks um, was won and won freedom for Jerusalem. After this freedom was won, a group of high priests and leaders, we're told, sat down and installed a man called Simon to be high priest and leader of Israel. Simon and the rebels, seeking international legitimacy uh, and protection, made an ally with the Seleucid's enemy the Romans how could that go wrong but that gathering of priests and rulers agreed together we read in Maccabees that Simon should be their leader and high priest forever until there should arise a faithful prophet and in 138 BC the independence of Judah was recognized by the Roman senate It seems then already in 168 BC the Jewish people were expecting a faithful prophet to take charge. This is probably a reference back to that verse we read in Deuteronomy about a future prophet who would come like Moses. But also about the prophecies of a future figure in the line of David who would become the rightful king. That's why Simon wasn't made king. Simon had a son called John who also ruled as high priest and leader and on his deathbed John decided that his wife would succeed him as the political leader of Israel and his son Aristobulus would succeed as the high priest. However Aristobulus had other ideas. Dissatisfied with his father's will he imprisoned and starved his mother to death. Killing his brothers he declared himself high priest and king of Israel. This infuriated the Pharisees who saw him as an illegitimate king. He was not from David's line, and not to mention, his actions showed he was clearly corrupt. Setting all this in the context of Zechariah's prophecy about the branch, we can see that it just simply hadn't come true. Yes, the temp- temple had been built, but not by a descendant of David. And yes, a priest had become king. Not from the line of David. And worse still, this high priest had become a political and corrupt office. Hardly the hope of the world. Aristobulus's heirs reigned as high priest and king until 63 BC. A civil war broke out. Two brothers claimed the right to be king of Judah. Um, but they were unable to resolve it, attracting uh, many Jews to their cause from both sides. So they decided to appeal to the kingdom's old friends to help resolve this, uh, this problem. The Romans were asked to help. However, in the end, it was a bloody ordeal. The Romans seized power for themselves and over the next century installed their own kings and governors, ending the independent Jewish kingdom. And with it, the hope of the Jews, these king priests we, we we discussed were called the Hasmonians, and as is often with the pattern of the Bible, they demonstrate perfectly the insufficiency of a human solution for the role of Messiah. Even if a king could rise up to lead the Jewish nation to freedom and salvation, ultimately the power would corrupt. The prophetic picture of a righteous priest king servant and branch to lead Israel could not have been this dynasty of Hasmonians. However, they did demonstrate the possibility, at least, of a king who was also a priest. Some years later, at the time of Jesus living under Roman rule, the high priest had become even bigger joke. It was a political position that was sold to rich and loyal families. You see, historically, High priests served for their full lifetime. But in 35 years of Roman rule, Jerusalem saw 28 high priests. The high priests wore a special and holy garment uh, for festivals, but even that had been taken by the Romans and kept under guard and only given out for the allotted time of ceremonies. The high priest had become stuck in the mire of politics and family squabbles. How must the Jews have felt at this time, seeing not only their kingdom administered by foreign powers, but now also their religion? The Jewish people were well and truly hopeless and clamouring for a saviour to fix the high priest role and fix the temple. In the atmosphere of corruption, people started moving out into the wilderness, despairing of the state of the high priest and the state religion. Local synagogue became a place of religious discussion and expression. Groups, demer- groups emerged with divergent theological ideas and attracted disciples. We see these in the New Testament. We hear about the scribes, the Pharisees, um, but there were also philosophers. The Jewish world was aching with expectation and ideas on how God might save them. And looking back onto the Torah and the prophets, they saw a pattern of a perfect high priest the branch, a new and perfect high priest in the line of David. If we put together everything we've learned from across scripture about the priests, so the priests we learnt in Leviticus and we also learnt about the prophecies of a perfect high priest, uh, we can start to build a list of what the Messiah will be like. First, he will be dressed by God with fresh, clean clothes. He will walk in God's way keeping his charge. He will rule God's house and his courts. He will have right of access to the holy of holies. He will preserve and cleanse the people and the temple. He will provide sacrifices on behalf of the people and allow them to be in the presence of God. And he will teach God's commandments. Who else fulfills this list than Jesus Christ? The writers of the New Testament spell out how this relates to Jesus really perfectly. There's some verses in Hebrew that make it plain why Jesus came not just as a prophet, healer and king, but also as a high priest. And I'll read that verse in the next podcast, um, so look forward to that. But it wonderfully ties together all the things we've touched upon here. Not only all that, but we see a surprising fulfilment of Jeremiah's prophecy that the branch We'll rebuild a temple. Remember, the wrong guy had built the temple. Instead, we read in the New Testament. On account of these, the Jews demanded, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. The temple took 46 years to build, the Jews replied, and you're going to raise it up again in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is the expected Messiah, perfectly fulfilling the role of high priest as seen in scriptures. As is typical with Christ's fulfilment of scripture, he went a bit above and beyond what was hoped or what was thought was possible for the Messiah. Rather than being merely clothed in righteousness, he was righteousness rather than once a year having access to the holy of holies on earth he entered god's presence in heaven all the time for all time rather than holding a political office and leading a temple and a people he built a new temple his body and a new people his body of a church rather than dying and passing on his authority to a dynasty of corruptible heirs he rose again from the dead immortal incorruptible forever the high priest and rather than offering the blood of animals on altars as a covering for sin he offered his blood which is the ultimate expression of life to give all people who believe in him new life i would like to talk more about how the messiah fits the pattern of king and what we can learn from that but i think for now we've run out of time So now we've covered what was expected um, out of a Messiah, a high priest and a king. Next time we can look at how Jesus was the unexpected Messiah. What did the Old Testament say about dying on a cross? And ultimately, does the Old Testament suggest the Messiah would be God himself? So look forward to uh, next time when we look at those unexpected things, uh, like the suffering servant and some other prophecies. Uh, And learn a bit more about how even when God lays out a plan for what he's going to do, he still manages to smash people's expectations uh, and kind of rise above them and, and deliver more. So until then, I'll see you next week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Amblecote Christian Centre's podcast. For more information about who we are, what we believe, and how you can get involved, check out our website www.amblecotechristiancentre.org.uk.